that day dawned just like any other. There may have been clouds wafting overhead, there probably were, and there was possibly some sunshine too, somewhere. Somewhere else, it rained, I suppose. The temperatures were likely around average for the time of the year. It was a Sunday, so the postman didn't deliver anything out of the ordinary, and most of the shops were shut, so no one bought anything especially interesting. Because it was Sunday, some people went to church and I'm sure listened to a perfectly average sermon and sung exceptionally normal hymns in a splendidly routine way. The earth spun at its regular speed and all of the planets saw the appropriate amount of daylight. Then it disappeared and people went to sleep. It was the 11th of April, 1954, and nothing happened. No, really, nothing happened. The 11th of April, 1954, is the most boring day in history. Don't take my word for it. That is the learned opinion of Cambridge University computer scientist William Tunstall Pedo. He has invented a computer program called True Knowledge, which came to this damning verdict of 4.11.54 after being fed some 300 million facts about people, places and events. The only event that might conceivably light a flicker of interest was a general election in Belgium. Nobody famous died on that day and no one famous was born, unless you stretch the definition of fame to include a Turkish professor of electronics named Abdullah Atalar. He's my favourite Turkish professor of electronics and I'm sure he's yours too. Oh yes, uh, Bill Haley and the Comets went into the studio and recorded Rock Around the Clock the next day. (laughs) So poor old 11th of April 1954, the most boring day in history. Imagine being the 11th of April 1954 and going to a party with all the dates of history. Uh, All the famous ones are in jovial conversation. Uh, There's D-Day hobnobbing with Jesus' birthday. There's the 11th of November 1919 clinking glasses with the 4th of July 1776. And in you walk and they all ignore you and whisper to each other, There's the 11th of April, 1954. So boring. That other day dawned just like it. Nothing happened that day either. No one went to work. No one lit a fire. No one walked more than 960 metres. No one wrote anything, drove their animal, cooked food or washed clothes. They didn't move a stone, put a flower in a vase or pick up the button that fell off their coat. Nothing was carried further than six feet, whether in the hand or the pocket or the mouth. It was just another Sabbath in first century Israel. Just another day of rest, of stifling, burdensome rest.
another day of the Sabbath police watching you, waiting for you to break the rules. And there they are in today's reading from Mark. Those Pharisees examining Jesus' every move on this normal Sabbath, waiting, hoping, praying for him to grind some grain or tie a knot or tear a piece of fabric. Anything, really, that was listed in the catalogue of 39 classes of activity that were forbidden. Intended for good, intended to bless... Intended as a gift from God to his people to liberate them from the burden of work, to bless them with family time, the chance to worship and read, to refresh and renew before the working week started again. But in the hands of those who did not understand God's heart, did not empathise with human beings and did not respect people's dignity, the Sabbath had become a blunt instrument to hammer an iron clasp around your ankle and deny you the joy of following God's ways. Heavy, imprisoning, deadening religion. You know it, and so do I. You may have been raised in a Protestant church, you may have grown up in a Roman Catholic one, but if you had an upbringing that included any kind of organised Christianity, you almost certainly came across this. Rules. Rules that appeared to have no purpose except to stifle your joy, choke your freedom, strangle your very life. Jesus certainly knew it, and it drove him crazy. It wasn't the rules themselves that provoked his anger, but the people who imposed them, the Pharisees, the Sabbath police, cruising the streets in their patrol cars, looking for seventh-day sewers, Sabbath-day spinners, Saturday shoppers. They sneer at walkers and remind them that they cannot go further than 960 metres and remind them that they are being watched. And this day, this otherwise uneventful, even rather boring Sabbath, this April 11.54 kind of day, the Sabbath police catch their man. Reports reach the precinct that Jesus' disciples have picked some grain while walking through a field. A clear violation of the law. The Sabbath cops hear talk on the street that Jesus is on his way to town. The precinct captain cancels all leave. His men position themselves around the city, guarding the gates, watching the people, surveilling the markets and meeting places. And here he comes. Not sneaking in like a man who has something to hide, but striding, rubbing the cops' noses in it, on his way to the synagogue to do what should be done on the, on the Sabbath. To pray, to worship, to set people free. They would love to catch him red-handed, take him downtown and throw the book at him. So they follow him all the way to the synagogue and enter They keep their distance, trying to blend in with the worshippers. 
Jesus, though, has nothing to hide and seems to relish the chance to provoke them. There, in front of everyone, he calls a man with a disabled hand to stand and come to the front. And he heals him on the Sabbath. Not technically illegal, but the Sabbath police don't care. By now, they have been stung by Jesus' bravado. Now, they are looking for any morsel of evidence they can twist to make him out to be a lawbreaker. They see this miracle for what it is. A direct challenge to their authority. A clear, loud declaration that Jesus is the Lord of the seventh day. A living testimony to the beautiful truth that the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. Rules or people. Religious laws or people. Dogma or people. It's obvious where the heart of Jesus lives and where his priorities lie. 2,000 years ago, he chose the health of a disabled man over the approval of religious leaders. He does the same today. Wherever people are made by the church to feel inadequate, inferior or unacceptable. Humans, not rules. People, not dogma. Hear the words of a man named John Pavlovich, whose story, written on the website faithit.com, is the tragic opposite of that man in the synagogue with the disabled hand. He lists five reasons why many people are leaving church. Number five is entitled, Your Love Doesn't Look Like Love. And I've edited this excerpt. You may think you know why people are leaving you, church, but I'm not sure you do. You think it's because the culture is so lost, so perverse, so beyond help that they are all walking away. You believe that they've turned a deaf ear to the voice of God. You think that the gays and the Muslims and the atheists and the pop stars have so screwed up the morality of the world that everyone is abandoning faith in droves. But those aren't the reasons people are leaving you. They aren't the problem, church. You are the problem. Love seems to be a pretty big deal to you, but we're not getting that when the rubber hits the road. In fact, more and more, your brand of love seems incredibly selective and decidedly narrow, filtering out all the spiritual riffraff, which sadly includes far too many of us. It feels like a big bait-and-switch sucker deal, advertising come as you are, but letting us know once we're in the door that we can't really come as we are. We see a Jesus in the Bible who hung out with lowlifes and prostitutes and outcasts and loved them right there. But that doesn't seem to be your cup of tea. Church, can you love us if we don't check all the doctrinal boxes and don't have our theology all figured out? From what we know about Jesus, we think he looks like love. The unfortunate thing is, you don't look much like him. We want to matter to you. We want you to hear us before you debate us. Show us that your love and your God are real. 
I try to share my heart with you, the heart of me and thousands and thousands like me who are walking away to let you know of the damage you're doing and the painful legacy you're leaving. And apparently, you're not the problem. I let you know how judged and ridiculed I feel when I'm with you, how much like a hopeless failing outsider I feel on the periphery of your own inward judgmental communities, and you proceeded to tell me how lost I am, how hopelessly in love with my sin I must be to leave you. In the face of every complaint and every grievance, you've made it clear that the real issue is that I'm either sinful, heretical, immoral, foolish, unenlightened, selfish, consumerist, or ignorant. Heck, many days, I'm not even sure I disagree with you. Maybe you're right, church. Maybe I am the problem. Maybe it is me. But me is all I'm capable of being right now. And that's where I was really hoping you would meet me. The spirit of those religiously correct Pharisees lives on in every Christian pastor, priest, minister, and every regular church member who places dogma above people. You see it in politics, where purists will not work with other people on a grand and noble vision because they disagree with them on one small aspect of policy. And you see it inexcusably in the church. The need to be so doctrinally pure that we reject people. We disagree with someone's morality and so we withhold our acceptance. We interpret scripture differently from them, so we refuse to extend the hand of fellowship. We disapprove of their lifestyle or decisions or actions, even ones made many years in the past, and so we reject. And when we do that, we align ourselves with the Sabbath police. Humans or rules, people or dogma. As it happens, the Sabbath cops were right. Jesus was a lawbreaker. Picking grain on the Sabbath was against the law. In this instance, he did flout the clear teaching of Scripture. But love was more important to Christ than being doctrinally pure. People are more important than religious correctness. So this morning, if you have ever been denied the gifts of God because you have broken religious rules, then know this, Jesus welcomes you and lavishes his grace on you. If you have been refused the sacraments because you are divorced, Jesus welcomes you. If you have been denied the sacraments because you have not been confirmed by a doctrinally pure bishop, Jesus welcomes you. If you have been told that you can't join a congregation or serve in a leadership role or be ordained or minister the grace of God in some way because of who you are, then Jesus welcomes you. And if you identify with the Pharisees in this story, if you keep a neatly pressed, beautiful, clean, 
uniform in your closet with shiny buttons and a gleaming badge shaped in the word Sabbath, then maybe this week, leave it there. Better still, put it on Craigslist and wear something else instead. The sandals of Jesus. The robes of welcome. The garments of embrace. Follow the one who placed people before rules. You will find no boring days as his disciple. There's no 4-11-54 in Christ's calendar. But days of excitement, challenge, struggle of course, but joy, contentment and a huge cloak of love. Amen.